Good evening and welcome to our Bible study. We are continuing and hopefully completing a series that we've been doing from 2 Peter called Growing in Grace and Truth. And if you are following along in the notes that we've provided, uh, we are on page 44 of the notes. Again, 2 Peter, Growing in Grace and Truth. This is now chapter 3 that we're in. And any and all of these messages uh, that we have done have been recorded, and you can find them on our church website at www.new-life-ministries.org. And you can follow the uh, menus there to find the audio as well as the outline notes. Okay, here we go. Um, we finished in our last session with a portion of scripture that I'll read again. It's Second Peter 3 from verse 7 to 10. And it reads, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now in this final chapter of Second Peter, just after a very long uh, section in the previous chapter on false teachers and false prophets, in this final chapter, after some opening words about how he was writing to wake them up, to stir up their minds and to stimulate them to wholesome thinking, he gives us some very important wisdom for the last days. And he warns about what I believe is a distinct and a separate group of people from the ones that he spoke of in chapter 2. These he refers to as mockers. And we saw last time that the word is a very different word. And it literally means those who deride, who mock, who scoff, or who jeer. And Peter specifically says they will be here in the last days. And the main thing they will be mocking is the coming of Jesus Christ, which he promised. Many, many scriptures that we might look at a few of them tonight, where Jesus, uh, on his first coming, he said, I'm going back to the Father and I'm going to come again. And so these last days mockers will be laughing and making a mockery of those who are waiting for the return of Christ. And we saw that they deliberately and willfully reject the Word of God as it applies to three specific things. And I'll just go over this again quickly. Number one, even though they know it, they mock and reject the scriptural account of a special creation of the heavens and the earth by God. That they didn't come about by a big bang, they didn't come about by evolution from molecules and slime to apes and men. They were created by God. The second thing they willfully and deliberately reject is the biblical account of Noah's flood. And of course, you don't want to admit that there was a worldwide flood because then you have to admit that the Bible's true and that there's a God in heaven who judges sin and wickedness and violence, which is exactly what the flood was all about. And thirdly, they reject and they mock the promise of Christ's second coming. Keep those three things in mind because those are the three 
basic things that are under attack today. It's the truth of Genesis that God created all things. Secondly, if God created all things, then he has every right to hold us accountable and to judge us for sin and wickedness. And thirdly, there is the clear promise given to us throughout the New Testament that Jesus Christ will be coming again. Now, in the passage that we just read, it makes reference to the day of the Lord. And I started to introduce this last time, and this is where I want to begin again. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And we saw that God is not slow, He's patient, and He's waiting for one thing. He's waiting for repentance. He's not willing that anyone perish. He doesn't want people to perish in the final judgment. He's giving them every opportunity, but ultimately they will perish if they refuse to accept God's gracious provision of salvation through His Son Jesus Christ and by responding to the gospel through true repentance. Now, there's a lot of confusion on this point, and so I want to take a little bit of time with it tonight. Verse 10 again, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now there have been Christian movies made and books written about Christ coming like a thief in the night. And that was supposed to be the rapture where his people are caught up in the air to meet Jesus coming like a thief. Now, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble tonight, but that's not biblical. Jesus is not going to come like a thief in the night for his bride. And we need to understand clearly what Peter is saying here, and it will line up perfectly with other scriptures that were written by Paul and other apostles. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Whenever you find that expression, day of the Lord, it's found many, many times, both in the Old and New Testaments, it's always a day of darkness, gloom, judgment, and destruction. It is never a happy day. It is never a day that anybody is looking forward to. It's a terrible day. Okay? And you can look up those scriptures for your, for yourself if you want to get a concordance, uh, many, many Old Testament passages about the day of the Lord. That day is not to be confused with the New Testament day of Jesus Christ, or day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a different day. And we who are believers, we are looking forward to the day of Christ, not the day of the Lord. And this next passage, I think, will shed a lot of light on this, and help you to see the difference between these two separate events and the two separate groups of people who are involved. And we turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, starting with verse 2. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, from 2 to 9. Paul tells the church, You know very well, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's exactly what Peter says. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now just stop there for a minute. That doesn't sound real good to me. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains and they will not be able to escape. This is not a happy day. This is not a day anybody should be looking forward to. And as we continue reading, I think you'll see very clearly, the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night 
is not something that the church or the bride of Christ is looking forward to. Next verse. But you, brothers, notice Paul is talking to the Christians, but you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. That's very clear and very significant. You brothers, you Christians in Thessalonica, you are not in darkness so that this day, the day of the Lord, should surprise you like a thief. Now, I don't think anybody listening tonight likes to have a thief break into their house or their car. It's not a, it's not a good metaphor, one of a thief coming in the night. And yet, many Christians have tried to make this apply to Christ coming for the church in the rapture. It's not biblical. You brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. It's going to surprise many people, but not the, not the Christians, not the church. Verse 5, You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. Notice how many times he contrasts light and darkness, day and night here. The day of the Lord is always associated with darkness. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, verse 4, but you brothers are not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Notice, he's getting more specific now. People who are of the night, they're asleep. They're not alert, they're not self-controlled, they're not of the day, they are aligned with darkness. They are asleep in the night and they're drunk. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Verse 8, but since we, we Christians, we who are called to be the church, the bride of Christ, we belong to the day. We're not a part of the night. We're not looking forward to this day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's no time in this study to go into the depth of this, but if you really dig deeper, you'll find that the day of the Lord is a time of judgment. It's a time where the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb, the Lamb Jesus Christ, is being poured out on the earth. Paul says God didn't appoint us to suffer wrath. He appointed us to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. One other scripture that I think will help kind of seal the deal on this um, thief coming in the night. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. And you'll remember there are seven messages to seven churches here. These are last days messages for the churches. And they're strong, very strong warnings. Many of them point out faults, weaknesses in the churches, as well as strengths. And then it calls them to repentance for certain things that were going awry in their spiritual lives. Here in Revelation 3, starting at verse 1, it's the church in Sardis that is in question. And starting with verse 1, I'll read down to verse 3. 
To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now that would go over real well if we preached that in all of our churches this coming Sunday, wouldn't it? Well, we need more messages like this because the church is sleeping. There are a lot of people that think they're alive, they have a reputation of being alive, but notice what Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know the way you're living. You have a certain reputation, but Christ can see beyond reputations. He can see reality. And the reality about this church, even though they had a great reputation, he says, you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Wow. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So, just pause there for a minute. All was not well with this church in Sardis. There were some serious problems going on here. They apparently had quite a name. Maybe they were a big mega church. They had fame and glory and large numbers of people attending their services. I don't know. I can only speculate on that, but they had a reputation. But the reputation didn't line up with their reality. They were dead, they were dying, and Christ says, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now notice verse 3. This is very important. Remember therefore what you have received and heard, Obey it and repent. Well, obey what? He told them to wake up. If if you don't wake up, if you don't obey what you're hearing, and if you don't repent, something's going to happen to you. What is it? Well, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. That doesn't sound very good to me. That's like, Johnny, you better clean your room or I'm coming. Something very bad is about to happen to these people if they don't wake up, if they don't repent. What's going to happen to them? Christ says, I'm going to come like a thief. He's not talking about the rapture. He's talking just like Peter, just like Paul, he's talking about the day of the Lord, the great tribulation, the wrath of God for those who refused to wake up, repent, and walk with Christ. And if you keep reading the rest of this message, I think you can see the whole context. We're not going to take time for that tonight. But the, the point I'm making here the day of the Lord being like a thief in the night is not a good thing. It's always a negative thing in the scriptures, and it's not something that is promised for the overcoming bride of Christ. It's rather for backsliders, for those who have fallen asleep, those who refuse to obey the word of God. Now, I want to move on. 2 Peter 3, verses 11 to 14. Peter says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, well, he just finished saying, everything's going to be burned up with fire. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt 
in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. This is a very profound question that Peter asks. Since everything will be destroyed, what kind of people ought we to be? If this earth and even the heavens are about to pass away, what are we living for? What are we doing with our time? What kind of people ought we to be? What should our perspective be? What should our focus and our mindset be? Should it be on gathering up as much gold and silver from the earth? Should it be amassing all of the treasures we can possibly find here on planet earth? Should it be building a big name and a reputation for myself so everybody will... will honor me and praise me and look up to me if everything's going to be burned up? Well, I think you understand what Peter's trying to get out here. If the world is passing away and everything in it, then we need to change our focus. We need to lift up our eyes, fix our hope on things above, set our affection on things above, Stop looking at temporal things and focus on eternal things. We need to be eternally minded people. And when that happens, we start living differently. He says, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, the answer is his own question. You ought to be holy. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You know, this is something I have to remind myself of often, and I think all of us uh, have this same problem. We tend, over a period of time, to lower our vision from heaven back down to earth. We start to set our affection and our focus and our interests again on things of this earth. But you know, we have scriptures like these to remind us. And let me read another one that I've referred to here. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. If indeed everything around us is going to pass away, what are we living for? What are we doing? Here's what John says. 1 John 2, from 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Man, this is coming at a bad time, just before Christmas. Everybody's so involved in shopping and presents and eating and parties and what am I going to get and what am I going to give and we're all focused on stuff and John says don't love it don't love the world or anything in the world the whole world system he's talking about because if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and here's a good one, the boasting of what he has and does. Oh, how we like to boast about what we have and what we do. Oh, I'm the president of such and such, and... I own 73 houses and 12 businesses. Oh, wonderful. It's all going to pass away. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has (coughs) and does, 
comes not from the Father, but from the world. And here's the clincher. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Here's the question. If everything's going to pass away, how should we be living? It really has a profound effect on our day-to-day lives when we have the right answer to this question. If it's all going to be burned up in the end, why are we placing so much emphasis, so much importance on this world, the things of this world, the things that we own and the things that we do, boasting of what he has and what he does. How should we live? Well, Peter's answer is simple. Live holy and godly lives. Holy means separated. We need to separate ourselves from this world system, the world's way of thinking, because we're, we're surrounded by it. But Jesus said one thing very important. You are in the world, but you are not of it. Sure, we need to rub shoulders with people. We need to be out and about in the world every day, but it doesn't mean we need to be a part of the world system. And particularly, I think it's talking about a certain mindset, a certain vision. We need to have an eternal vision. And the Holy Spirit will help us with this. He comes to us often and whispers to our spirit, This is all going to pass away. This is all vanity. This is all going to be burned up. Why are you putting so much attention and so much focus on these things? Let me read to you 2 Peter 3.11 in the Amplified. It says, Since all these things are thus in the process of being dissolved, I like that, dissolved, What kind of person ought each of you to be in the meanwhile? In consecrated and holy behavior and devout and godly qualities. Second, I'm sorry, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Back to Paul again. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is the message you find throughout the New Testament. We're here on this earth. We are in the world. We're surrounded by sin. We're surrounded by lust and desire and greed and all these other things but we need to separate ourselves from that and we need to have a different focus waiting for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ very definitely we need to be deliberate about fixing our eyes on this heavenly eternal hope. Remember, it's the very thing that the mockers and the scoffers are ridiculing, the coming of Christ. That's the very thing that we are to be looking forward to. And that is the blessed hope for every believer. It's not for a better world. The world is going to be burned up. It's for a new world. It's for Jesus Christ to come back and to establish His kingdom. Back to 1 John chapter 3 verses 2 and 3. 
Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been known. But we know that when he, that's Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is the hope you and I need to have, and we need to cultivate it, strengthen it, and guard it with all our might. What is our hope? It's that when he appears, we will be with him, and we will be like him. 2 Timothy 4, from verse 1, I'm going to jump around down to verse 8. Paul writes, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Verse 5, But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Down to verse 8. Now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, let me reiterate again, the very thing that is going to be undermined, mocked, and ridiculed in the last days is the promise of Christ's return. That's the very thing that you and I need to be longing for. No wonder it's under attack. No wonder the secularists and even the backsliders, they say, oh, you're waiting for the rapture. (laughs) We've heard all about that one. That's never going to happen. Well, Peter, Paul, John are all singing the same song here. They're saying, fix your eyes on Jesus, get ready, because He promised he'll come again, and he will come. And he's not slow, he's patient. But eventually, time will run out, and he will return. Now, there's a fascinating concept in these verses we just read from Peter that you find nowhere else in the New Testament. And... This is something that I've pondered for a number of years. I'm not sure I fully understand it yet, but I just want to introduce it to you. Uh, In 2 Peter 3 again, verse 12, he says, As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. It's very clear. Most of the translations are similar. And it's very clear in the original Greek. What Peter is saying is we, the believers, by looking forward to that day and by doing all of the other things he's spoken of, living holy and godly lives, looking forward to the coming of Christ, we can actually hasten that day. The word is very, very specific. We can speed it up. We can somehow hasten that event by our anxious hope and expectation. Somehow we can accelerate the process and hurry up his return. In Revelation 22, verse 17, a well-known verse, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Well, who are they saying come to? 
the Spirit and the Bride are saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Now, when you keep calling out to somebody, Mommy, come here! Daddy, come! Well, what are you expecting them to do? You're expecting them to come. You're not wasting your words for nothing. Why is the Spirit and the Bride saying to the Lord Jesus, Come! Come! Well, here's his response. Revelation 22.20 He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. And then our response? Come, Lord Jesus. The quicker the bride prepares herself, the sooner the bridegroom can come. And the longer we dawdle and delay and play games and play church, the longer it's going to take. Because he's waiting for us to be prepared. And it's very clear in Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. If you want to hasten the coming of the Lord, start getting ready. Prepare your life. Get serious about his return. Get serious about holiness. Get serious about digging into the word of God and giving your life to prayer and giving your life to evangelism and giving your life to the kingdom of God and not just amassing all the treasures and pleasures and junk that this world has to offer. Why? It's all going to burn up. It's all vanity. It really is all vanity. Now we need to eat. We need a place to lay our head. That's about it. Paul says if you have a little bit of food and a few clothes to wear, be content. Praise God. That's all you need. And my experience in traveling around, visiting different churches, and listening to different Christians talk, uh, a lot of Christians have lost this vision. They're no longer looking for the coming of Christ. You don't even hear them preaching about it. They're talking about building programs, raising more money to have a bigger, uh, nicer, air-conditioned sanctuary. And it's all about this life. Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Peter is trying to stir up the Christians, and that includes you and me. He's trying to stir us up here, wake us up, and remind us so that we can get our focus and our mindset right. Everything's going to be destroyed. Everything's going to be burned up. There's a day of judgment coming. How shall we live? Well, we should live godly, holy lives, looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, since God is delaying Christ's return only for one reason, it's because he doesn't want anybody to perish, and he's waiting for everyone to come to repentance, the sooner believers bring others to repentance and salvation, the sooner that day can come. So by our preparing ourselves and by our announcing the good news to those around us, we can hasten that day. Now, in verses 12 and 13, he says, The heavens and the earth will be melted with fire, but we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Oh, I am so happy about that. I have no hope for this world. I have no hope for this earth. It's going to burn up. 
We're not supposed to be hoping for a better earth. God's going to replace this one with a new one. He's going to create new heavens and a new earth, and that's what the Christian is to be looking forward to. Isaiah 65 and verse 17, this was promised even in the Old Testament. God says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. See, God isn't just going to slightly remake this world and this world system. This whole world system is under the power of the evil one, John says. You only need to watch a few minutes of the news this week to understand that. Where demon-possessed men will go into a school and gun down 132 innocent children in cold blood. I mean, this this is beyond any, any sense of decency or humanity now. The kinds of violence, beheadings and and suicide bombings and and terrible terrible things that are seeming to get worse with every passing week well praise god the lord is going to replace it all soon with new heavens and a new earth revelation 21 verses 1 to 4 this was john's hope and it's what you and i are looking forward to then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, <clears throat> for the old order of things has passed away. In that new heaven, in that new earth, and in that new Jerusalem, there will be no more sin, no more violence, no more racism, no more greed, no more cursing. None of the filth that we see around us in the world today is going to be there. And so if you like that stuff, then you're not going to be happy in this place. This place is for the holy. And the impure, the sinful, the unrighteous will be apart from that place. That's why Peter says, and I'm reading again here, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. The home of righteousness. No unrighteousness will be at home there. And if you read the rest of Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, it's very clear. God is going to make a separation between the righteous and the unrighteous, the pure and the impure. Nothing impure will be in God's kingdom. Let me read just a few of these verses. I think you know them. Revelation 21, verse 8, for instance. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Drop down to verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, the city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, 
but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't know if it bothers anyone else, but I'm hearing a lot of lying going on in the world today. Politicians lie, businesses lie. It just seems to be the name of the game now. Everybody does it so easily and so freely. They lie about their business, they lie about the products they're selling, they lie about what they're doing in the government. Lies, lies, lies. I'm looking forward to a day when there aren't going to be any more liars around. All liars will have their place in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. In God's kingdom there will be truth, there will be purity, there will be righteousness. Praise God, we can look forward to that place and that day. Verse 14 in Revelation 22, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside the city are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You know, these Islamic murderers, that's what they are, they're murderers, who are blowing up people, gunning down innocent children, beheading people, <coughs> I don't know, I feel sorry for them because they've been so blinded and deceived by the devil. Uh, I hate to break the news to them, but they're not going to have 72 virgins in heaven to enjoy. They're going to the lowest, darkest hell, as will all murderers. All murderers will have their place in the lake of burning sulfur. We look forward to a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, the home of righteousness. Finally, Peter says, Since we have this hope, make every effort to be found by him, or some translations would indicate in him, to be found by him and in him, spotless, blameless, and at peace. Notice those three words. We need to be found by him and in him, spotless, blameless, and at peace. At peace with God, at peace with ourselves, and at peace with our fellow man. In Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. just want to read a couple of quick verses here which should uh, be reminders to us of what God is looking for in His church, in His bride. What, what are we doing to make ourselves ready? Remember, the bride has made herself ready. Ephesians 5, starting with verse 25. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Now, no time to go into depth with this tonight, but there's a key phrase here, to present her to himself. When is that going to happen? I believe it's talking about the rapture. That's the day of presentation, when the bride is presented to her husband. She must be in a certain condition, a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Hebrews 12 and verse 14 
it says make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy without holiness no one will see the Lord notice there again peace and holiness we must live in peace and be holy first Thessalonians 5 verses 23 and 24 may God himself the God of peace sanctify that's to make you holy sanctify you through and through may your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ so when Jesus Christ comes we must be found blameless sanctified spirit soul and body it's a pretty tall order but verse 24 gives me great hope and comfort the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it finally to complete this little section 1 Corinthians 1 verses 7 and 8 these are just a few scriptures among many in the New Testament that talk about the preparation of the church for Christ's return therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ that's not the same as the day of the Lord this is the day of the Lord Jesus it's referring to the rapture now in just a few more minutes I want to conclude this whole study and we come to the final verses of 2nd Peter 3 verses 15 to 18 these are Peter's final final words he's about to leave this world to go be with his Savior and these are his final thoughts for you for me and for the church here's what he says <clears throat> bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him he writes the same way in all his letters speaking in them of these matters his letters contain some things that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction therefore dear friends since you already know this be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. He says in verse 15, bear in mind <clears throat> that our Lord's patience means salvation. This seems to be a further reinforcement of what he was saying earlier, how God is not slow, he's patient he's long-suffering hopefully giving more sinners a space of time to repent and to come to him his patience may ultimately result in the salvation of many more people but make no mistake his delay is not giving us an excuse to go on sinning as long as the life of a sinner or a sinful nation like the US is prolonged and judgment is delayed this can be mistakenly understood as a sign of God's approval let me be very clear about this 
when God's judgment is delayed, we often mistake that as a sign of his approval. Oh, he's okay with the way I'm living. No, 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 no. As long as God is delaying his judgment, remember, it's just for one reason, and one reason alone. He's giving us a little bit more time to repent. And that's the only thing he's waiting for. Repentance. Let me read to you a very powerful scripture from Romans 2, verse 4. And I want to read it to you in the Amplified. Romans 2, and verse 4. Paul says, Or are you so blind as to trifle with and presume upon and despise and underestimate the wealth of God's kindness and forbearance and long-suffering patience. Are you unmindful or actually ignorant of the fact that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repent, to change your mind and inner man to accept God's will. Now, I know a number of people who are obviously living in sin. They're not walking with God. They're not serving Christ. And they're enjoying a lot of God's goodness. They seem to have good lives. They're not sick. They're not dying of cancer. Uh, Their kids all, you know, seem to be doing well. They're going off to college, getting degrees, getting good jobs, and they're getting nice houses, and everything seems to be going well for them. So, what's all this talk about repentance? Paul is warning that we can presume upon God's forbearance, and his patience, and mistake all of that for, well, you know, I guess God's okay with the way I'm living. True, I'm lying and cheating, and, you know, living in a little bit of adultery here and there, but he's blessed my business, and, you know, I'm in pretty good health, and everything seems to be going well for me. I guess I'm okay. A lightning bolt hasn't struck me yet, so... I don't need to change anything. Paul says, dead wrong. All of God's goodness is designed and intended to do one thing, to lead you to repent, to change your mind and your inner man to accept God's will. And if we go on presuming upon God's patience and goodness, there will come a time when that patience runs out. Now, Peter mentions Paul, interestingly enough here, and it's very obvious that a number of Paul's epistles had been circulating throughout the churches, and Peter had read a number of them. And he says, there's perfect unity and harmony between everything I write and everything that Paul writes. We're all in complete agreement. And he also refers to Paul's letters. These weren't just little Dear John letters. He refers to them as the Scriptures. Okay? By this time, Paul's letters, and by implication, Peter's letters, they were becoming a part of what we now call the Scripture, the Holy Writings of God. It's a very specific word Peter uses here to refer to Paul's letters. He calls them the scriptures, placing them on the same level of authority with Isaiah, Moses, and Ezekiel. He also says, admittedly, some of Paul's writings are very difficult to understand, and they have been distorted Literally, that word should be perverted by unlearned, ignorant, 
and unstable people to their own destruction. Perhaps another reference to the false teachers of chapter 2. Distorting and perverting the scriptures, what's their end? Destruction. Finally, Peter's last words are, Be on your guard, and grow in grace, and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Kind of a bittersweet ending. Be on your guard. Well, that's what we've been hearing throughout this letter. False prophets are coming. False teachers are coming. Scoffers are coming. You need to be on your guard. You need to be awake. You need to be alert. But you also need to keep growing in grace and in your knowing Jesus Christ. Let me read to you verse 17 in the Amplified. It says, Let me warn you, therefore, beloved, that knowing these things beforehand, you should be on your guard, lest you be carried away by the error of lawless and wicked persons and fall from your own present firm condition your own steadfastness of mind. Now earlier in this study we saw in Matthew 24 Jesus predicts that in the last days there will be a great rise in lawlessness. Oh man, are we seeing that in the world today? Just in the last few weeks. Riots everywhere, looting, just complete disregard for law and people yelling and shouting in the streets, kill the cops, kill the cops. It's total anarchy. And this to me is a very important sign that I'm watching closely because I know we're getting close. But he also says this, because lawlessness increases, the love of most is going to grow cold. So more than ever before, as you and I are witnessing all this rioting and rebellion and anarchy in the streets, we need to make sure we stay on our guard, we stay alert, and we're not carried away by the error of lawless and wicked persons. It means to be watchful, to beware, and to avoid them. Don't drink in that spirit of lawlessness. Don't fall for this, <clears throat> well, everybody else is doing it. I can do it too. Everybody else is cheating on their taxes, so I'll cheat. Everybody else is saying kill the cops, so I'll yell kill the cops. No, don't be carried away with their error. And it's the word that is used here for error is a Greek word that means fraudulence, a straying from orthodoxy or piety. It can also mean deceit, delusion, or an imposter. So don't be carried away with fraudulent delusions, fakes, frauds, lies, and so forth. And what will happen? You'll fall from your own firm condition. To neglect or disregard all of Peter's warnings in this little letter about false teachers, about last day's mockers, <clears throat> would be like committing spiritual suicide. We need to be strong, steadfast, discerning Christians who will not be swept away now with this flood tide of wickedness and deception and thus lose our salvation. Finally, 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 and I'm really going to end now, but grow in grace, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word grow can also be translated enlarge, increase, and grow up. So there needs to be an enlarging 
an increasing and a growing up, a maturing in our understanding of God's grace. Living things keep growing. Dead things don't. So if we're going to keep growing, we need to be alive. We should be increasing in God's grace. We should be growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ forever, seeking to know God better. We, we read in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We never come to a stopping place where we've learned it all, we know it all, oh, now I know God. I don't need to seek Him anymore. No, 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 no. Keep growing in grace. Keep growing in the knowledge of God. In Colossians 1, <clears throat> 9 and 10, I'll finish with this prayer. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's close with one final word of prayer. Father, I thank You for these times that we've spent together looking at this short but powerful letter that Peter left us at the very end of his life. Very powerful words to stir us up, to have us both be on our guard and to be growing in grace and in truth. Father, I pray that these words would remain in our hearts, that we would continue to keep these in the forefront of our minds, and God, help us to set our affection, our focus, our vision on things above, not on the things of this earth. Holy Spirit, remind us each and every day that this world is passing away and everything that's in it. Help us to fix our eyes, not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen, for those are the things that are going to last. God bless each and every one that's a part of this Bible study tonight. Keep each and every one of us as the apple of your eye. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen and amen.